Tom Loops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, always a pleasure to hit Friday and talk to my guests this week. Uh, pleasure to welcome to the show, as always, Global BC's Keith Baldry and from the Vancouver Sun, both Rob Shaw and Vaughn Palmer. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Well, uh, why don't we jump right into this, because the uh, the pipeline battle flaring right up this week, as we kind of suspected it would, with uh, new Alberta Premier Jason Kenney uh, taking charge in the province next door. Before we get into kind of the rhetoric of it, uh, I think the, one of the more sort of interesting, substantial things this week that came out of the John Horgan press conference uh, was this sort of hinting or teasing around some kind of a negotiation or a negotiated solution, perhaps linked to getting guarantees in the flow of refined products to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, Rob, why don't we go to you first? Uh, what was your thought as you watched what John Horgan sort of tap dancing around this? Yeah, I mean, I think there were hints in his answers that BC has a negotiating position here to go to Ottawa, first on the existing pipeline to try and get Ottawa the owner of the pipeline now to increase, um, you know, the um, refined gasoline flow and uh, decrease uh, the bitumen flow. Now, it, that's going to be a bit problematic on the existing pipeline because all the contracts are already there. But there is a portion of it that the National Energy Board has on the spot market where companies bid for capacity. So maybe, you know, Ottawa, if it wanted to get its hands dirty, roll up its sleeves exercise control over the NEB, which is fraught with probably some political peril, maybe could make a difference there. On the expanded pipeline, you know, it's the same negotiation tactic, I think. If, if BC could end up in a position where Ottawa reduces the amount of bitumen flowing to the coast in the expanded pipeline, thereby reducing the amount of tankers, the oil tankers are a real sticking point for the NDP government. The, that vision of an expanded oil tanker, um, you know, crashing and, and polluting the coast, and it replaced that with more uh, refined gasoline and point to a reduction in the price at the pumps. Maybe that's the path forward. When you ask John Horgan that, he says, "I don't want to show my cards. Uh, I want to negotiate." But it seemed for the first time we got a hint. Um, that is something British Columbia could pursue when it talks about this. Well, John Horgan may want to go negotiate, Keith, and, and I don't know if it's going to go down that path, but the obvious question here, if the Premier wants to go to the table and talk, is there anything at all that would, that would inspire or draw uh, Justin Trudeau and Jason Kenney to talk to our Premier? Well, I mean, I think there's going to be talking anyways, no matter what. I mean, it's in, in their self-interest, all three of them, to keep the lines of communication open. But this is going to be fascinating. I'm not sure what to make of Horgan's comments, frankly. Uh, he seemed to backpedal as quickly as Vaughn asked him, actually. In the, we were out there in the Rose Garden and said, wait a minute, are you suggesting that uh, maybe we could actually get this pipeline built if there's a quid pro quo? And he said, no, he's uh, still opposed to the tankers in Burrard Inlet. So I, I still think there's a... A big stumbling block there for Horgan to get to actually get to the point of accepting a, a second pipeline, uh, and I'm not sure it's actually possible uh, to change the the capacity of that pipeline in the short term because my understanding is that pipeline is filled with product from producers that sign long-term contracts, and you just can't suddenly break those contracts and rearrange what's in the pipe. Uh, over time you can, but I don't think you can do that in the next you know, two or three weeks. Mm. And we're talking in terms of, this all comes back to the price of gas in Metro Vancouver, and this is gonna be a summer-long issue. And I don't think it's gonna get resolved, no matter how many meetings there are 
between Kenny Trudeau and Horgan. But it's going to be fascinating, certainly that first uh, Western Premier's Conference in June, and then the first Minister's Conference in July is uh, going to be probably the most interesting gatherings of, the, of that at that level for, for well more than a decade now. And Vaughn, of course, politics also muddying the waters. Uh, I really enjoyed Andrew Coyne's column uh, this week and his uh, summary of it on Twitter, and I'll quote it directly. Alberta might do what it says it won't do unless BC uh, does what it admits that it can't. Worse, the feds may not approve a pipeline they've already approved and own unless Alberta leaves in place an emissions cap that's not actually in place. At the end of the day, is politics going to steward this whole thing? Yeah, there's a lot of politics in this, and of course, it's federal election year. Horgan in his press conference this week, referred to that as well. He said it's a federal election year. Do they really want to leave this situation the way it is? Um, he said they are the owners of the pipeline now, and maybe they can do something about it. The, the, the thing that was new to me this week, <clears throat> two things. So first of all, the premier said he is going to approach the owner of the pipeline to see if they can get more gasoline to B.C., and maybe they can, maybe they can't, but that's his pitch. And it, it's true, or Rob quoted the line when he was asked, and what would you do in return? He said, well, I'm not here to negotiate in public. And he said, you don't show your cards. That's the first indication we've had that he even has a negotiating position on this, right? Remember, he was Mr. Use Every Tool in the Toolbox to stop this thing. Well, he's probably down to his last tool. Uh, this B.C. case, they call it the reference case, where the Court of Appeal of B.C. has been asked to rule that the province can have some kind of role in regulating the movement of bitumen through the province. Uh, B.C. is seeking the court to say it can. Uh, we don't know what the court will say. Whatever it says will be appealed. But that's pretty much the last tool in the toolbox for Horgan. So maybe he does have a negotiating position in anticipation that he may lose the court case. Well, maybe that's the key here, Rob. I mean, if he's going to go into a negotiation, he's got to put something on the table. Is is the only card he has left his government's support of Trans Mountain and or dropping uh, the court cases that are currently out there? Does he have anything else to offer? Um, well, I mean, it depends on how complicated, I guess, things get between Alberta and Ottawa. There's this whole other fight that's going on now about, um, you know, the pipeline and the, um, the oil sands emissions cap in Alberta and whether Ottawa is, uh, is, is going to play hardball on that. And so it, it becomes, you know, who could, who could he ally with at a point of need, um, to exercise the maximum influence that he has. I, I think he has to see the court cases through the green partnership with British Columbia, with the NDP here in BC mandates that, that, that he can't back away from the court challenges now. Um, and so those are kind of, I think, the last tool. Beyond that, the question will be, do you take the court challenge to the Supreme Court of Canada? And that may be where the Oregon government just kind of says, okay, look, we're done. We, we took it as far as we're going to take it. But you can't, I don't think you can back out of the court challenge now. I think you have to, you have to both see what British Columbia's power is here in the Court of Appeal and you also have to follow through on your challenge of Alberta's uh, legislation and, and see it through. It, uh, to do otherwise, I, I just don't don't see how they could go back to the Greens and say we're backing away from it. Yeah. On the, on the court front, Keith, I mean, the province now finds itself, as it has in the past, 
uh, making court arguments on both sides of the pipeline debate, both yeah. looking for some kind of control over the flow of the pipeline, as well as going to Alberta and saying, hey, listen, uh, this pipeline and what's in it is of supreme importance to the province of British Columbia. You can't just turn off the taps. Now, the Premier said this is, uh, this is, there's a different um, court case. These are differing matters, but, but are they? No, and I actually put that question to the Premier and said, you know, is this not these two positions incompatible? Um, and he just sort of danced around it. And he right, said, oh, this is different. But he didn't explain exactly why it's different. It seems to me the same argument is at play in both cases. Alberta is arguing it gets to decide what goes through that pipeline. B.C. is arguing it gets to decide what goes through that pipeline. And B.C. is challenging Alberta's view on constitutional grounds, saying it's unconstitutional. But by the same notion, they are advancing the exact same argument. They're talking about different product. Alberta's talking about uh, just generally oil and gas and fuel. Uh, B.C. is focusing on what it defines as... Um, uh, dangerous uh, ke chemicals, in this case heavy crude, but uh, the principle is the same. Who controls what goes through the pipeline? It's, it strikes me that BC's position is, is hypocritical, if not contradictory at, uh, at best. And the other part of the equation, of course, is Mr. Kenny Vaughn, who this week was uh, uh, had some interesting things to say. Uh, he, uh, as far as I know, and as I can prove, falsely claimed BC's withholding Trans Mountain permits. Morgan got a little fiery when asked about that in his press conference this week. And Jason Kenny also referred to our premier as Premier Harcourt, not once, not twice, but three times in his scrum. Now, I don't know. Maybe Mr. Kenny is is got some nerves coming out of the gate. Uh, or maybe he's deliberately poking and prodding and playing some mind games. What did you make of Kenny? Well, that's a that's a real dated reference. Now, uh, uh, some listeners will be scrambling off to Wikipedia. <laughs> Who the hell is this Premier Hardcourt guy? <laughs> you know, it's uh, Horgan. I guess could turn around and call uh, Kenny Don Getty, and that might that might be the kind of payback you'd want. And uh, look that one up as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, uh, Kenny's wrong on the permit thing. The BC government keeps very very careful tabs on the permit count. Uh, it's incredible to me that in order to get the thing built, you're going to need more than a thousand permits. Um, but for a project that still hasn't been finally approved by the federal government, which means we haven't really started approved construction yet, um, the B.C. government says it's already approved more than 300 permits and that each permit, as it comes forward, is dealt with the way the government always deals with permits, which is fairly, doesn't hold them up unreasonably, apply standards, make sure the standards are met, and then signs off on it. So B.C. is not holding it up. I mean, uh, the only thing B.C. is really doing at the moment is this court case, and it hasn't won the case yet. If it wins the case, we might be into territory where B.C. tries to do something. But at this point, the, the project is, is being held up by the fact that the courts um, ruled uh, that Ottawa had to go back and redo its approval. Yes, it's true that the owner of the pipeline walked away in part because of what it regarded as obstruction out here. But, uh, you know, it was mostly uncertainty. And as we saw from the courts, not all of the uncertainty came from the B.C. government. Yeah. And as we remember, uh, Premier Horgan this week saying that whole permit thing that Kenny had was was rhetoric of the campaign that he's still sort of getting a little hungover with. Well, remember that it was our Premier John Horgan who raised the permit issue in his own campaign about to having tools in the toolbox, maybe permits being one of them. He's since discarded that idea. So the rhetoric knife certainly cuts both yeah. ways. Uh, guys, let's take a quick break and we'll dive into the First Nations aspect of the Trans Mountain Pipeline issue right after this.
Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Guys, an interesting development. Uh, we're all aware of the, the bitter division uh, on the Trans Mountain Pipeline issue, but it certainly is extended to First Nations. Uh, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs this week, uh, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, issuing a letter aimed directly at a group of First Nations who are looking to buy all or part of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, he was saying, hey, this thing's not profitable. The construction costs are going through the roof. There's no market for it. Uh, basically trying to amp up the pressure for this First Nations group to stand down. In response, uh, Whispering Pines Chief Mike Laborde firing back a letter on behalf of this group uh, directly at Grand Chief Stuart Phillips and saying, listen, uh, your facts are based uh, are, are false. You're, you're basing your information on flawed assumptions. And in the end of the letter, a real direct shot at the Grand Chief himself, basically saying he's displaying an old way of thinking. Uh, Keith, what do you think? Oh, I think it's uh, quite an important development. Increasingly, we're seeing other First Nations who see resource projects as a way of helping their members to get out of what is, in many cases, a grinding poverty situation uh, with economic benefits, starting to speak out. So this letter, this isn't just a sort of a dismissive uh, couple paragraphs. This is a point-by-point takedown of Stuart Phillip by uh, by the chief of Whispering Pines, Clinton Indian Man, Mike Labordet. And it's uh, an indication, I think, there's probably going to be more uh, First Nations speaking up about this. Jason Kenney, back to Jason Kenney, uh, in one of his uh, many lines in his first news conference, talks about uh, 100 First Nations support uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I think that's a little overstated. I don't think there's quite that many. But uh, nevertheless, there are a significant number of First Nations who support Trans Mountain and asking Horgan to get on board with those First Nations. And it's, uh, at some point, you know, the Horgan uh, government's going to have to decide who they go with? Is it Stuart Phillip, who appears to be against everything, uh, or do they go f- uh, with other First Nations who want to see some economic development? And I think the pressure is going to be within that cabinet room at some point to reconsider their existing situation, which seems to be backing Stuart Phillip. Yeah. Uh, another part of the letter that caught my eye, Vaughn, is, is right in the tail end of this thing when uh, Mike Laborde raises this thing about Stuart Phillips saying, listen, even one First Nation can obstruct the pipeline and keep it locked up in the court. And basically he says, uh, okay, yeah, but that's a bit of an intimidator here. Uh, is it interesting to see First Nations groups now divided like this and, and openly kind of arguing about the, the merits or, or not of this pipeline? Well, I think what we see here, and we've seen it with other issues in the province, I mean, good to be reminded of it, is that there are 200 First Nations in British Columbia, and they're not a monolith. We often go to uh, the very quotable, very provocative Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, but he doesn't speak for all of them either. And Keith's right, he tends to align themselves whichever, with whichever group is the most obstructionist. The, the only uh, the reference that jumped out to me on that, uh, Shane, the it only takes one First Nation, is, of course, the dilemma that the New Democrats face with their LNG project. Uh, they have 22 First Nations on side on that project. One branch of one of those First Nations has built a protest encampment in the path of the pipeline that would feed the terminal in Kitimat, and they are holding out. And... Uh, the government has got a, an NDP MP, Murray Rankin, a lawyer, to try to sort that out. He hasn't done it yet. 
so yes, it, 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 we've seen it in British Columbia. One First Nation, never mind one First Nation, one house within one First Nation, one group of leaders within one First Nation can stop or try to stop a project. And yes, I agree with you, Shane. This, this letter raises the stakes on TMX, but it raises the general issue, too, with the government, which is eventually you're going to have to choose among First Nations on some of these projects and decide which group you're going to align yourself with. Now, Rob, this, this group of First Nations, uh, I was talking to Mike Laborde earlier this week. Uh, he's aware of election season, federal election season looming. <laughs> He wants a deal put in front of Trudeau before uh, the silly season really begins. But let's fast forward. Let's assume that they get a deal done. If if the First Nations group takes over part or all of the Trans Mountain pipeline, does that is that a game changer enough? Does it steal thunder from some of the environmental opposition, which often cites some of the First Nation reasons for opposing the pipeline? Does it change minds among some First Nations who are opposed? Does, what 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 would that do? Well, I think it is a game changer if you can align yourself with eloquent, um, you know, First Nation supporters who can point to real benefits in their community, economic, social, and otherwise, from this project. Who can argue that the proper steps have been made on environmental mitigation and consultation? Then you do um, insulate yourself a bit from that that criticism that the Trudeau government's going to get. I I have a hard time imagining that the federal government is going to sell the pipeline or part of it or enter into any type of deal with First Nations until it gets to the point of actually starting to construct it and maybe even finishing it um, because there are so many uncertainties that exist before that. Uh, I mean, I could be wrong, but it's hard to... um, I mean, we don't even have technical uh, assurances from Ottawa that they're going to make a decision on, uh, on proceeding and approving the pipeline before the election, although that seems hard to believe as well. And, and, uh, so there's a lot of uncertainty there, um, but I, I do think it, it, um, you know, it exposes once again uh, what the Liberals believed here in British Columbia, which is that the Union of BC Indian Chiefs is quite often um, you know, an NDP-aligned organization, and uh, a lot of their speaking points against the pipeline match up with some of the, uh, the environmental wing in the NDP, and you look at one of the senior members of that organization, Bob Chamberlain, running for the federal NDP in uh, Nanaimo in the by-election and the politics that we talk about here, uh, you know, at a provincial level between parties also exist in some ways within the First Nations community. And uh, that's something that is, you know, an interesting perspective to put on a lot of this as well. I guess a final thought on this before we break to the bottom of the hour, just get a feedback from each of you. I mean, considering all the twists and turns, and I'm sure there's plenty more to come, but from where we're standing today, uh, is there any improvement in your minds of the, the, the chances that this pipeline will be built anytime soon, or are we still stuck in the quicksand on this thing, Keith? Well, I think we're in the quicksand, but I don't think we're in as deep as we were, say, a couple of years ago. I think... Um the election uh, this fall is the one dynamic that's changing this. The government, uh, the Liberals are obviously torn about whether or not they make the call on whether this thing goes ahead before or after the election. I'm sure they're weighing the political considerations of doing, uh, giving it a green light. I think it's going to be a green light. But is it favorable to do that before October? Is it favorable to do it afterwards? In fact, they may not even be the government after that. Uh, and it can uh, it, it can weigh heavily in terms of the electoral chances in certain areas. And right now, I would suggest the Trudeau government 
is far from uh, a favorite to win that election. They have to be looking at every writing. Every writing is precious to them. So yeah. uh, Quebec's uh, views is their anti-pipeline. B.C. is for the pipeline. However, in certain key urban areas in Metro Vancouver, urban ridings, that sentiment may be quite the reverse. So that's the other dynamic in this. And in terms of quicksand, Shane, I think we're in election quicksand right now. And I'm not sure we can get out of it before October. Vaughn, what do you think? On this file, the only guaranteed surefire bet is to bet on more litigation. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you're Lawyers. totally you're right. Uh, final word to you, Rob. This thing going to get built anytime soon or no? Well, I kind of think it will. I think that um, you know the government, the federal government, had a clear pass on what to do for First Nations consultation. They hired a former uh, justice to oversee that. They're going to come out of that with likely what they feel is a is a bulletproof, um, you know as much as you can, a uh, path to survive another court challenge that they didn't properly consult, and, and they go ahead. Now, whether they start construction before the election uh, is, uh, I, I guess, an open question, but I just can't imagine buying a $4.5 billion pipeline and starting a new consultation and hiring a former justice and doing all that and then concluding at the end you're not going to build it. Yeah. Uh, that would be an even bigger boondoggle than, than uh, starting it now. Absolutely. Uh, let's get caught up to the news at the bottom of the hour, and then we'll dive into a potpourri of other issues with the panel on Inside Politics right after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Uh, we got a whole bunch of stuff to tackle. We'll try and move through this as fast as we can. But uh, why don't we start off on money laundering? Uh, Sam Cooper with another big one this week, as he has done week after week on this file. It caught my ear uh, this week that uh, the Premier, in talking about uh, money laundering, touched on, I think, an important topic. People are mad about this. They want accountability and consequences. Premier John Horgan saying, we want to stamp this out. And then he said, and I'll read his quote directly here, guys. We have a plan going forward. We're working on that. We'll have more to say about the terms of that in the weeks ahead. Vaughn, the, the use of the terms of that caught my ear, and I immediately thought, oh, here comes a public inquiry. What do you think? Uh, that may be it. Uh, EB the other day uh, gave us an estimate, uh, 10 to $15 million for a public inquiry, and he figured it would take two years. Uh, he did, however, express uh, one continuing point of concern, which is what if it reports back and tells us a bunch of stuff we already knew, and what if it reports back and it says all the problems that need to be fixed are at the federal level? So I think there's still a debate going on in the government about how to go ahead on this and whether or not... Uh, and look, the Cooper story makes it a little more awkward for the New Democrats since yes. his latest report suggests the problem started under the NDP. I'm not sure the New Democrats want a public inquiry that says that. Yeah. Uh, and let's dive into that particular bit. I mean, Rob, uh, Sam Cooper, uh, as always, has done some pretty amazing work. Now, the Premier was asked about this and said, well, uh, people don't care when this thing started. What they want is they want accountability and they want consequences. And to some degree, fair enough. But he, was, he, uh, was he politicking a little there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's <laughs> fascinating because, uh, you know, uh, colleague Richard Zussman and I, we recently did a chapter for a book that's going to come out uh, about the kind of top... Uh, weird moments in bc political history and as part of it i went back and was reading a whole bunch of the 1990s stories on you know bingo gate and glenn clark's deck and it is amazing 
when you go back to the 90s, how many names you recognize in the current NDP government? And I'm not just talking about Mike Farmworth, whose hands were all over the gambling license, casino license issues from the 90s, but also John Horgan, the staffer, Adrian Dix, the staffer, Jeff Meggs, the staffer. Um, I mean, you... The problem with the public inquiry, and it was outlined in an odd way in, in Sam Cooper's story, is that you end up back in the 90s with the NDP's senior management now um, doing things back then that they never envisioned was going to come back to them when they're running the government. And that is a huge risk for the government, and they lose control in a public inquiry. It veers off into whatever direction yep. and whatever yeah. timeline it needs to go, and that is... I think that is one of the major risks that they must be thinking about in cabinet right now. It's great to blame the liberals for everything, but suddenly when the NDP get pulled into it, it's, oh, yeah, that's too far in the past. Who cares about that? And and really, honestly, I think the risks outweigh the rewards when it comes to the blowback that uh, the awkwardness that might ensue for some of the top people there. Now hold the phone. You and Zussman are doing another book? No, no, it's just a chapter in another book uh, about wacky oh, political right. moments. Okay, wow. Uh, you guys should do another book, by the way. Uh, yeah, Keith, they should. They should. They should. <laughs> Keep telling them that. Yeah. Uh, Keith, I, 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 the, the phrasing the Premier used this week, and I get it, and I think there's a genuine outrage among the public. We've talked about that a lot on this show. Uh, but he talked about stamping out money laundering. He talked about consequences. He talked about accountability. And while he's talking about it, part of me was going, yeah, okay. The other part of me was suddenly thinking back to Gregor Robertson's promise to eradicate homelessness in Vancouver in 2015. And, and I thought to myself, there's some things you have to be careful how you phrase your approach to. Now, people want consequences. Uh, people want money laundering stamped out. But And, and the goal is, uh, is laudable. But you, I think you've got to be a little careful there. I think you got to be careful. Um, I think you're right to pick up on the word terms. It sounds like there's something afoot. But to both Vaughn and Rob's point, uh, this thing could get away from them so quickly and so horribly that uh, it could be end up being far worse than having no public inquiry. If this goes back to the 90s, Sam Cooper's story focused on criminal activity that was alleged to have occurred in 1997. Well, the interview was government in 1997, 1998, 1999, year 2000, and most of 2000 or part of 2001. So almost five years on their watch, and one assumes that criminal activity did not disappear. Uh, that criminal activity was occurring five years while the NDP was in charge of those casinos. That's going to come out in a public inquiry, even if you try to, you know, curtail the terms of reference. Uh, it goes, and a public inquiry will go where it wants to go. And Rob's right, the government loses control over it. It will be in the hands of a commissioner and their counsel. Uh, it could also become completely paralyzed, as we've seen with other public inquiries, as every single person involved in this gets a lawyer. This is not all going to, as some New Democrats think, this is just all going to be about Rich Coleman and Mike DeYoung. No, it's not. It's going to go in places you have no idea where it could go, and it could involve people that may be working in the NDP government right now, uh, worked in the previous NDP government, uh, or, or in, in ways that could come back to embarrass the government and the party. And this thing could become a a hot-button issue that uh, blows up the NDP's face right around the time of the next election. I mean, if this thing goes on for like a year or two years and accomplishes nothing, it suddenly becomes a $15 million white elephant. And guess who wears that? It's going to be the NDP, and that's about the time they go to the voters for another mandate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we got a couple more minutes here. Let me just throw a couple of different issues at each of you. Vaughn, first off, you had an interesting piece today on the forest industry. Apparently, they're none too happy with the province over some changes to forest policy. Uh, this has become a familiar refrain on a number of different fronts, but they're saying, hey, listen, 
there was no consultation here. Yeah, Western uh, Forest Products uh, comment from them out today or from the uh, from one of the securities analysts uh, saying, quote, unfortunately, we believe that this government has very little idea of what is required to foster a globally competitive forest industry, whether it be on the coast or the interior. That's today. Uh, last week, you had uh, West Fraser, one of the biggest companies in the province, their CEO telling a, a conference call with business analysts that uh, very concerned about lack of consultation, about changes in policy that will make the industry less competitive, and saying his company, which has spent $600 million modernizing its mills in British Columbia, is not going to be investing any more at the moment because they have serious doubts about whether or not this government is going to affect the competitiveness of the industry. So that's one for the early warning screen. Uh, the government has got a force bill in front of the House that's very controversial. They're revisiting this caribou rescue plan which could have impact on the industry but uh, we'll be hearing more about this I think uh, we're into an area where the major forest companies are not responding very favorably to Premier John Horgan's call for them to spend more money on improving productivity and creating jobs in BC uh, Rob you raised an interesting point on social media this week and by the way welcome back to Twitter um, <laughs> uh, uh, Weakling. You're, yeah, uh, you're you're complaining about uh, how silly things are getting in question period, and maybe uh, this is part of it. Maybe it, it speaks to the issue as a whole. But Rich Coleman, with a bit of a bonehead comment, uh, comparing the Holocaust to uh, farmland legislation, which liberals say is ripping away the rights of farmers. Andrew Wilkinson apologized. Rich Coleman's apologized. Uh, but does it speak to kind of some of the stuff that's going on in the legislature these days? It's just a little bit kind of nuts. Yeah, it's a dumb move by Coleman, but I think it's just a lack of discipline uh, on his part to, that, uh, you know, kind of caught him. And it, it happens. It happens on both sides. They just end up usually around Nazi references. The, the MLAs get themselves into trouble trying to yeah. reference that particular period of time. But uh, it's bad here, um, you know, and question period is I just I tweeted out that it's just a waste of time at this point because the NDP uh, ministers now, uh, and particularly Bruce Ralston and Shane Simpson, uh, stand out uh, as two who are not even addressing the conceptual idea of the question being asked to them. They're not even, they, all they do is stand up and throw 16 years of the dubious decade back at the Liberals. And it's a, just a total waste of time. It is as bad, uh, their non answers are as bad as the worst of the previous Liberal government's non answers. And the hack questions from the liberals that aren't really questions are just as bad as the worst of the NDP when they were in opposition. And I think for people who thought that the NDP government was going to be um, more accountable in the House, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't see that at all. I think things are just as bad as they've ever been here, and it's kind of a waste of time, a lot of stuff that... Uh, that occurs in question period. Uh, period. <laughs> uh, final word to you, Keith, on the legislature spending scandal. Former Supreme Court Justice Beverly McLaughlin has submitted her report. Uh, I don't. I'm assuming we haven't get, got word on what that might or what might be in it or what its implications might be. But uh, is the legislature sort of hanging on whatever might be in there and, and whatever shoe drops next? Yeah, there's a lot of expectations that this is going to be the final say in this whole thing. I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, I think the lawyers are now going to get involved. Uh, this is going to go to a lawyer that the House leaders have, uh, the three House leaders have hired. Uh, it may go to the clerk, Gary, or Craig James and Gary Lenz, the, uh, the sergeant at arms, who are basically effectively suspended. It may go to their lawyers as well. 
Once it's in the hands of lawyers, who knows what's going to happen to this thing. There is a pledge to make this thing public, but we have not been given a timeline or date or anything like that. It may be next week. I have a feeling it's not going to be next week. I think this thing's going to drag on for some time. Uh, and who knows what Beverly McLaughlin has recommended here. I think it's a complete wide-open guess over wh where, where she lands on this. Uh, I've heard everything from speculation that uh, will lead to right dismissal and termination to a negotiated settlement to reinstatement. So uh, I don't think anybody has a clue where she's going with this thing, and I don't think we're going to get any answers anytime soon. I think this report is going to be sealed up for some time yet. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thank you. And when you wake up tomorrow, remember, may the 4th be with you. Oh. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look forward to talking to you to, uh, to you guys next week. Uh, that's Keith Baldry, Von Palmer, Rob Shaw. Thanks, gentlemen. And we'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics. Next, Attorney General David Eby joins us. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Real pleasure to be joined in the program now by this province's Attorney General, David Eby. Good morning, David. How are you? Oh, good morning, Shane. I'm good. Excellent. You're a busy man, as always. Uh, the pipeline battle is flaring up. I know... Uh, you've launched two court challenges in Alberta the minute that Jason Kenney, uh, the new Alberta Premier, uh, tabled uh, the turn-off-the-taps legislation, as it's being called. Uh, I have one point of curiosity on this, and I know that Jason Kenney was asked right off the bat, uh, and he danced and ducked around the question, so I, I want to direct this at you. Uh, if you have an existing, in this case, two court challenges over this contentious bill, to the best of your knowledge, does Jason Kenney or the government of Alberta have any power to actually use the bill while it's actively in front of the courts or no? Um, so that is one of our two applications is uh, that'll go ahead on May 7th, uh, we hope. Uh, and that is to ask the court to uh, either declare the law of no force and effect or to order the minister not to use the law. Uh, until the constitutionality is determined. So we're asking for, it's like an injunction, uh, to stop the Alberta government from using the law until the, the underlying case is decided. Right now, uh, they could theoretically use it. Um, I think that uh, everybody is hoping, uh, including uh, Premier Kenny and uh, Premier Horgan, that uh, they can work things out, uh, obviously. Okay. Could they theoretically use it? I mean, you've, you, if, yes, you, if it's in front of a judge. Okay. So until a judge renders a decision, this thing is in play. Uh, intro. What That's do you? Right. And so, if they if they did use it today, we'd be in court today um, asking for an immediate injunction. Um, but uh, but we've got a hearing scheduled for the seventh. Okay. Uh, what do you think your chances are here, Dave? Uh, I really uh, reluctant always to speculate on these kinds of things, but I uh, it's hard to avoid the fact that there's a very explicit clause in the constitution that says exactly this kind of activity is prohibited by the constitution. It says you can't discriminate in distributing. Uh, refined product, uh, and it's the reason it was put in the Constitution was to avoid exactly this scenario where a uh, province with energy products uh, tries to force another province to do its bidding by cutting off energy supplies uh, uh, in a discriminatory way. Uh, and so, you know, it's right there in black and white, and, and we'll see what the court does. You never really know. It's up to the court, but uh, I feel like we have a very good case. Some people have pointed out here that uh, your government uh, is now sort of battling both ends of the same battle. You're in Alberta saying, hey, listen, the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is very important to us. The flow of the product through it is vital to BC. On the other end, you're battling to sort of have some say or control over that flow. Do you see an irony there or no? 
Yeah, well, there are people who are deliberately conflating the kinds of products that flow through the pipeline. So uh, some of the products that flow through the pipeline are crude oil uh, feedstock for refineries in British Columbia uh, and uh, refined products like diesel, gasoline and uh, jet fuel for YBR. And then the other product is diluted bitumen, which uh, you can't use in your car. Uh, you can't use it for a jet. And uh, it's really hard, if not impossible, to clean up. And our concern uh, lies on this issue of diluted bitumen, and that's why we've asked for adequate uh, spill control to be in place before any expansion of either the pipeline or, or shipments by rail continue. And uh, we've referred that regulation to the Court of Appeal here in BC to ask whether we have the authority to do that, because Alberta said they thought we didn't. Uh, so we sent it off to the court to, to get a decision about whether we did. The Premier this week has seemed to raise or hint at the possibility of some kind of negotiated solution here, uh, perhaps uh, revolving around getting some guarantees in, on the on the amount of refined product flowing through Trans Mountain. Is that a possibility, Dave, or no? Yeah, the, the uh, surprising uh, news for many people is that uh, the amount of refined products over the last couple of years have been steadily declining in the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and the amount of diluted bitumen has been increasing for export. Uh, the impact of that can be seen pretty clearly in British Columbia and steadily rising gas prices. And so the Premier has been uh, uh, asking and reaching out to the federal government, the owner now of the pipeline, uh, to increase the flow of refined products. Um, certainly that would make a difference for gas prices in British Columbia. I'm curious what you think about, uh, Rachel Notley made a, an interesting comment this week reacting to Jason Kenney's uh, following through on his promise to, to pass Bill 12, basically saying she had advised him to hold it dormant, then suddenly pass it and turn off the taps before anything goes in front of the court. Uh, and therefore, that's its use as a weapon, uh, basically hinting what he's done is he's uh, passed the legislation, opening the door for your court challenge, and essentially neutered that weapon. I'm curious what you think about the comment and what you think it says about what the government thinks of the legality of that particular bill. Yeah, it's pretty discouraging to hear that. I mean, what it suggests is that the uh, previous government knew the bill and the law was unconstitutional. Uh, they knew... Uh, after the court decision, when we went to try to get it declared unconstitutional, the court said, you're here too early. It needs to be proclaimed into law before you can challenge it. Uh, they knew that and then decided not to proclaim it because uh, they knew if it went in front of a court, it would be found unconstitutional. And so they were lying in wait to, uh, to proclaim it and, and implement it on the same day so that uh, they could uh, unconstitutionally and illegally uh, harm British Columbia's economy. Um, and that is, uh, I mean, as an attorney general, I've got to say that's, uh, that's quite a serious uh, uh, thing for the Alberta government to have been uh, planning, if that's in fact the case, and, and everybody's understanding of what the plan was. Uh, my understanding as Attorney General is that uh, it's my role to make sure that the government acts in a way that's legal and constitutional. And uh, I, I would be surprised if the previous Attorney General in Alberta um, was part of that plan. And if she was, then uh, I can't understand. Certainly, Mr. Kenny proclaiming the law uh, and having it tested in court, that is the right step to take and, uh, and and the appropriate step if he believes the law is constitutional. Uh, I want to toss some money laundering things at you. Uh, we, of course, we're waiting for a decision from, from your government about uh, whether or not we see a public inquiry into this thing. I note the Premier uh, this week saying that there's a plan coming, and he used an interesting phrase uh, when he described what uh, what might be announced, basically saying the terms of that uh, will come out shortly. When he, when he said the terms of that, David, my first thought was, oh, that might be a slight slip. And I, that kind of indicated to me a public inquiry might be coming. Has a decision been made there or no? So the decision about uh, public inquiry or not, along with uh, Peter German's latest report and 
another report done by some international experts on uh, money laundering and real estate are in front of cabinet. And so cabinet has to take that decision. There's been no uh, order in council establishing a public inquiry. And, uh, and so, no, there has been no decision taken yet um, by cabinet on that. Um, and I can tell you that uh, our hope is to have these reports out uh, to British Columbians uh, as early as next week. And, uh, and I think that will really help uh, provide some context about uh, where we're going and, and what the issues are. What do you think? I mean, you've seen this thing, and I don't, I, I'm not asking to kind of uh, release the whole thing on the show unless you really feel like it. But uh, give me a sense. <laughs> give me a sense what British Columbians are going to see. I mean, are are they going to be shocked by what what comes out next week or no? Sure. Um, so there there are these two separate reports. Uh, German was looking at luxury cars and horse racing and real estate, uh, and the international experts were looking at real estate. There are a couple of uh, of key pieces to that. One is the extent of money laundering in real estate. Are we able to, to put a figure on that? It's the most often and most frequently asked questions. So uh, we've got a number of international experts who uh, put their minds to try to, to get a sense of quantum. Uh, and then the uh, other piece that people can expect to see is there's been a lot of concerns and questions about, you know, why is it that uh, Metro Vancouver is the um, uh, North American capital for luxury cars, uh, especially given that you can buy luxury cars uh, for cash, is there a connection here uh, with uh, with money laundering? And uh, I can tell you certainly that uh, I was very disturbed by the findings in relation to the luxury car uh, section, and I look forward to getting that out to British Columbians as soon as possible. With the details, is there also going to be some news on uh, how your government is going to tackle uh, whatever revelations come at us next week? Uh, yes, um, that will be part of it, although obviously it's very early days. Uh, just so that your listeners know the reason why we're not just immediately releasing the reports is we have to get sign off from the police to make sure we're not compromising any active investigations and then also individuals and companies that are named in the reports uh, need to be given an opportunity to respond um, uh, legally this is a requirement that we have to go through uh, so we're on the verge of completing that work and we should have that information out soon one thing that really continues to strike me about this topic dave is the uh, outrage among the public is very tangent and i don't care who you vote for people are pissed off about this especially in the lower mainland um it struck me this week that the Premier talked about stamping out money laundering. He talked about people wanting consequences, people wanting accountability. He talked about the frustrating lack of prosecutions on this. Can you give assurances to people who are listening now that uh, there is going to be something coming that will provide or address uh, this, this, this public anger, this public thirst for some kind of accountability? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the key recommendations in Dr. German's first report was a dedicated police unit uh, to focus on uh, anti-money laundering, specifically in casinos. And we're currently working with the RCMP uh, to uh, come up with the, the frame for that to make sure that the money get, doesn't get diverted to something else, that it stays focused on anti-money laundering, and also that the team has the tools they need to really chase this down in British Columbia and hopefully get some arrests and prosecutions. And the second piece is the federal government and the Budget Implementation Act has a piece in there that will amend the criminal code to make it easier to prove uh, money laundering uh, by uh, having an element that's recklessness. So you don't have to actually show that the person knew that the duffel bag full of $20 bills that they were bringing in uh, was the proceeds of crime. But simply if they were reckless about it, um, then that will be sufficient to prove the money laundering. Uh, and uh, that will make a big difference for prosecution. So I'm hopeful that we're turning the corner in terms of the criminal justice system. And then as far as political accountability, uh, that would come through a public inquiry and that will be a decision made by cabinet. And uh, last topic, ICBC changes looming on uh, in September 1st. Uh, they're major changes. Uh, this ship, as you know, is uh, leaking 
uh, fiscally all over the place. You're trying to right that ship. Uh, hopefully these changes will do it. But uh, on a pure information flow front, Dave, I mean, drivers, we're about, what, four months away from these changes. We still don't have anything as far as quantitative information so that uh, myself or other drivers across the province could sit down, look at these changes, understand them, and more importantly, calculate what they mean for our bank accounts. So when is the information going to come and will it come far enough in advance of September for people to wrap their heads around it? Yeah, you're referring to our uh, our rate design program, and that is the shift in uh, rates to increase rates for people that have um, multiple at-fault accidents, excessive speeding, uh, driving while impaired, that kind of thing. If you have a record with a lot of stuff like that on it, you can expect to pay significantly more. Uh, and low-risk drivers, people with uh, without uh, at-fault accidents, uh, without those kinds of infractions, um, and uh, long safe driving records are going to see significant uh, decreases. Uh, we will have, ICBC is going to have a, a tool on their website uh, that people are going to be able to go ahead and calculate uh, uh, what their rates are uh, going to be under this newer system. And uh, they can make a decision about whether to renew uh, before the new system is in place in September or to renew after. Um, uh, based on that, you know, we understand that people will want to uh, make those decisions, but this is something that ultimately um, high-risk drivers are not going to be able to escape. Their rates will go up um, and uh, and go up significantly. So I would encourage people to uh, drive safely out there. We've got to get the crash rates under control, and we also need some link between insurance rates and people's behavior on the road. But is ICBC or should ICBC have some responsibility to get the information out so people can understand oh, absolutely. this? Absolutely. It's Absolutely. They'll have this tool up imminently on their website so that people can uh, can go through and, and calculate the impact of different ways of, uh, of insuring their vehicle. Everybody thinks of themselves as a good driver, Dave. Uh, and you've said publicly that uh, this is going to mean bad drivers will pay more and good drivers will pay less. Do you anticipate uh, that some people are going to do these calculations and then go, whoa, wait a minute, I'm a good driver. Why am I paying more? Uh, the vast majority of drivers will see a very marginal uh, difference on either side of their rates. Uh, there are sort of this hockey stick effect of uh, of a group of drivers who are very high risk or being subsidized by uh, the bulk of drivers in British Columbia. I have no doubt that, that many of these drivers may think of themselves as uh, as good drivers, but there will be objective uh, factors to point to their excessive speeding tickets, their driving while impaired, uh, roadside prohibitions, their at-fault accidents. I don't think it'll be hard to demonstrate to British Columbians why their rates are going up. Um, Mr. Eby, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking some time. It's always good to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Shane. And that was Attorney General David Eby. And that brings to a close this edition of Inside Politics. My thanks to my guest today and my thanks to you for tuning in. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL next week. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local news now.